Welcome to Wealthy Experts, where we interview experts in their field so that we can learn all the best ways, tools, and tips that they use to build a wealthy life. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome, everybody, to another Wealthy Podcast. And today, we're very lucky to have Paul Liron from M Squared. He is one of the co-founders and managing directors over there. Paul, thank you for joining the show today. Thank you, Dominic. How are you? Very, very good. There's a lot of interesting news. Um, you know, for all of you out there, Paul actually does a monthly subscription where you can log on, log on M Squared and he, he does a detailed review and analysis on the market. He's a very well-read and versed man in real estate and finance, in economics. He's someone that I occasionally like to catch up and just, you know, at least a couple of times a year, like to sit down and sort of pick his brain and see what's going on in the market. Um, he is televised. You probably see his face. He's familiar on TV as well. He's catching up with all the major economists. So great to have him on the show today. Paul, you and I were sort of gibbering on earlier about a few different things. So there's a lot to talk about today. There's migration, there's COVID, there's the state of the uh, you know, interest rates, set of finance, what's happening in, in investments. Well, yeah. where do, where we, do start? we start? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I think it, right now it's very topical in relation to having that bit of a crystal ball effect and seeing what's going to happen with the property market next two, three years. Um, because we've had multiple articles written by different economists saying, we think the market's going to go up five, down by 20, or down 20, and maybe not up by five. And, and, and look, even from a political perspective, pro property prices is becoming a, a very a very interesting topic because you know, you've got this situation of affordability. Uh, properties are less affordable now than they have been for decades. So, you know, where, where from here uh, when we have zero interest rates as well? So um, it, it, it's becoming a much more uh, bigger conversation piece. I think Australians are in love with property. If you go to a barbecue, everyone's talking about property and the house next door that sold for, you know, a million dollars, what they were expecting. And, and uh, you know, for a small nation like us, we have um, you know, more than 60% of our wealth in property. Uh, per capita, we are one of the wealthiest people on the planet. Um, so if you put all that together, um, you know, where property prices will go in the future or our expectation has a significant impact in relation to our economics and how we have our family budget and households. So yeah, it is a big subject right now, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I mean, for you specifically, so just this just for everybody out there, can you just give us a quick pitch on what M Square does, M Square Capital? Um, because it, it'll create a lot of relevance for this conversation. I know you guys, but I'd love for the audience to know you too. Sure. So M Square Capital is, is essentially deemed as a non-bank. We what we do for investors, we allow investors to create their own uh, platform. We have a platform and we allow them to create their own diversified um portfolio of direct mortgages. So what we do is uh, we have what's called a contributory fund. When I try to explain it from a technical perspective, people still scratch their head and don't understand exactly what it is. Um, the best way to explain it is, uh, Dominic, a lot of people like to have their own property, direct property. You have people like to buy their own direct shares, for example. So what is the benefit of actually owning direct property and direct shares? You have more control, you have transparency, you can control your own risk and hopefully you'll be able to have a higher return than having all of those assets in, in a pool of assets with other people as well. So the same thing with mortgages. 
um, investors are able to choose the specific mortgage opportunity. So for example, last week, we just settled a service station transaction. Um, it was uh, tenanted by Woolworths, 10 year lease, strong, strong tenant. Um, it was a two year facility, 65% gearing. So we're not, we didn't uh, uh, lend more than 65% of the valuation. Um, and we were returning 6.75% net return to our investors. So investors were able to choose that as part of their portfolio um, as an investment. And today we just launched another one. Um, for example, a, a property, um, a borrower needs to borrow uh, 75%. For our investors, we did a 65% gearing, um, 6.75 net return, and it's an apartment in Manly. It's in a promenade looking over the water. Um, okay. So those are the type of opportunities we give to our investors. They can, they can choose, they get the due diligence, they're able to give us a call. Uh, we co-invest with our investors as well. So we're, we're very hands-on. We have a lot of our wealth in the fund ourselves, personally, between myself and uh, my partner, Paul Miliotis. Um, and we manage the debt facilities the way that we manage our own money. So right. we've, we've been doing, doing this for a long time. So it's so, a, so in a nutshell, it's non-bank lending and you go out there, give the money out to different real estate assets. It could be commercial, industrial or residential. Right. People, uh, investors come to you, they go and get a five, six, 7% cash on cash return, pay it in arrears. And it's just a way for them to divert, diversify their portfolio when they're at that stage where they're really looking for cash. So yeah. the reason why I brought that up is because all of our investors out there, um, <clears throat> it's good to get a bit of perspective on how you're thinking about real estate and how you're thinking about wealth management in perspective with how you, you operate your business. Mm. Now, what's the one thing that you're currently sort of paying attention to in the market that you think is gonna have a massive impact in the next sort of 12 to 24 months or even 36 months? Like it, you, you've got a way up risk you've got to assess debt and you've got to assess you know the market outlook and a lot of your your yep. facilities are 9 12 24 36 months so yep. what's the couple of things that you're thinking about or keeping your eyes on well if you look at risk you have to uh, you have to disassemble risk in two aspects one risk is what we can control and what i can control is our internal assessment of a particular transaction so what is the gearing what's security, the type of security we can do? What's the gearing that we will do on, on a particular security? How liquid do we think the security will be in a difficult market? Uh, who's the borrower? Do I know the borrower? Do we do the checks on the borrower? Is he of a person of character? Um, you look at that particular borrower needs to have competency. He needs to have a good cash flow because at the end of the day, our investors don't share the upside in the asset they invested. They, it's a fixed income in the, in the respect that they need to have their regular income. They want to make sure the borrower is able to afford it. So those are the things that we can control. And that's the things that we share with our investors. The things that you can't control is a macroeconomic. And that's where it gets a little bit inter interesting. So we have a view of the macroeconomic. Obviously, everyone, when everyone's talking about property at the moment, uh, everyone's concerned about what's happening with inflation. Yep. But, so let's talk about inflation. <laughs> Um, because it is a, it's a, it's quite, it has, a, it will have a significant impact on all asset prices. So whether it's property, whether it's a share market and other asset classes, inflation has a significant impact. Now there are two schools of thought right now in relation to inflation. During COVID, when we we're in lockdown, we were sitting home, we were, you know, watching Netflix, 
um, and essentially buying our groceries from uh, the internet, our lifestyles were very different. So when you look at data from when you were sitting from home to now, when we're out of lockdown, a lot of inflation markers are a lot higher than they would normally would be. So for example, petrol, if you're not using your car, and obviously petrol is a little bit higher now than it was before uh, the lockdown because there are restrictions and um, uh, trade and things such as that, but supply chain issues, but everything is amplified. All that data is quite skewed. So there's two types of economists right now arguing two things. The inflation is either permanent or is it transitionary? So if it's transitionary, it's basically six months, in six months time from now, inflation should come back to its parameters. Now, the reason why it's so important is that all the reserve banks around the world, they need to keep inflation under 3% or close to. If they allow inflation to go too high, you're gonna have a, a reverse situation where um, prices go out of control and people can't trade normally with confidence. Um, so it's not an ideal situation. So this is the biggest question mark right now is what's gonna happen with inflation. Now, if interest rates do go up by 1%, if you look at the analysis done even by RBA, um, Peter Tulip did a really great paper in relation to what actually drives property prices. And interest rates is one of the biggest drivers. So an average household, for example, uh, 35 to 40% of the after-tax dollars of an average household spends the money on the mortgage. So if you have 1% increase in mortgage rates, it's a 15% increase in their repayments. So they have less money to spend. They can't afford the same property that they would have bought before that interest rate increase. So it's a trickle effect. So that is the number one question mark that sits over the property market and the economy right now is what's going to happen with inflation. And do you have any sights on that or, or any... Um... Do, do you believe that, that, that we are facing any, any potential risk with inflation, hyperinflation, stagflation? Do well, you see that things are okay or? Well, look, my personal belief is that um, what's underestimated is the transitionary period, meaning that when you are a lockdown and you're coming out of lockdown as well. Uh, I do believe that if businesses are quite efficient, if there's a larger demand, they'll find the capacity to suit that demand. Um, I think the risks that we have is labor in Australia. Um, a lot of people haven't really spoken about, but a, a lot of temporary visa holders, there are about 340,000 jobs that were lost the day that um, we went into lockdown because all of the students um, um, or temporary visa holders went back overseas. So that, 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 was a, that, would have, that has that, a significant impact. And so that's why I wrote an article recently about immigration saying, well, look, when, once the borders open, having a high immigration will keep the wage growth to a certain level. Like in the US, for example, right now, they're saying the wage growth is closer to six to 9%. I think, I think Australia, if we were to have wage growth of six to 9%, then that would actually push through to our inflation figures and, and keep interest rates to go up. Um, the worst thing that you can have right now for our recovery is that you've got restaurant owners can't even hire people to, to even service the restaurant. They can only open two, three days a week because they don't have any labor. Yeah. Um, it's a very unfortunate situation. They got hit with two years worth of COVID and now they can't even hire anyone because there's no, there's no labor market for, the, for that. People who could have got another job, got another job. So there's no one to have to replace that particular profession. So I think I see risks in relation to it. 
Um, but I also see certain things that the government will do to be able to cushion that risk as well. Yeah, it's interesting because I read your, um, and that's the reason why I brought up your mm. monthly newsletter. I read your monthly newsletter on inflation. I found it very interesting. We have similar points of view on this where I do believe that once the borders open up, I mean, it's supposed to be opening up tomorrow, maybe, maybe not, the 1st of December, depending on when we release this podcast. Um, but it looks like there are going to be more and more people coming in. And it seems like there's a similar sentiment into the the um, political system where they do want to open borders, they do want to encourage yeah. uh, migration, and they do want to encourage students. So as you said, there's hundreds of thousands of people, two, three, 400,000 people that should be coming into this country and will be shortly, yeah. that will fit up, fill up that labor shortage, both in you know, uh, trades, uh, you know, hairdressers, you know, the picking fruits, all sorts of stuff. There's things that we don't think about that need people there for, to, to fill those jobs. Well, look, as a business owner, I, you know, we've, we've felt the same thing, is that there is a shortage of, for example, cadets that you can get to work in your business. Um, everyone's fighting over the same students that are already here. So, look, I, I think the, you know, people don't realise, a lot of people don't realise that education contributes about $40 billion to our GDP. It's our third, third largest export item before COVID hit. So I, you know, I'm sure the government is very willing to open up borders for many reasons, because it also cushions our economy for future, future sort of black swan events as well. Um, uh, you know, like for example, Canada. Um, Canada is looking at actually increasing its uh, migration. It has, it's, it has two, it's, it's proposing to have 2.6% net migration to their population. That's significant. Uh, even before COVID, Australia was second in the world with 1.6. So the, just the mathematics in relation to, if you increase your net migration by 1%, it actually increases your GDP by 2%. Wow. So, you know, you know if, if you really want to start working out the, the value of, of, of migrants, you just need to look at a couple of core statistics. But, there's also a counter argument as well, is to say, well, you know, you can, you, can, you can increase your aggregate GDP by getting migrants, but at the same time, are you increasing quality of life? And that particular measure is done per, per capita. So how much income is generated per person? And in that particular measure, Australia sits 13th in the world. Hmm. So, you know, it's, it's a really delicate thing in relation to bringing the right combination of migrants, for example. Do you only build, bring skilled migrants in, or 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 how do you loosen up student student visas? Uh, one of my arguments was is that we have probably a lot of shortage in in short term um, short term sort of employment sectors like hospitality, uh, fruit picking, and so that's an opportunity to loosen up the student visas because on that particular visa class they can only work twenty hours a week. So, you know, you might create a different visa class where allowing them to work 40 hours a week and do part-time study as well. So those are the things that I'm sure the government is now exploring just to open it up a little bit because there, is, there are gaps in our labor market that can be filled very, very quickly. Whereas countries like America and Europe, they're struggling because they're unable to keep, to fill it. And yeah. without being able to fill those labor issues, you are not creating efficiency in your market and you are creating inflationary pressure as well. So it's, 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 
it sounds like to you that opening up the borders, allowing migrants into the country is going to solve quite a lot of things. I mean, we do need to be mindful of quality of life, but fortunately, we have had a government that's been very aggressive on building infrastructure across yeah. Australia. So yeah. that is to support a growing uh, population. Now, another thing that we've been talking about recently, now that's, certain, that's certainly a, um, a demand driver for real estate to push prices. We yeah. spoke about interest rates potentially going up. That's going to be pushing, you know, that'll take some of the steam out of the market. Yeah. But one thing that we haven't discussed and, and that, we, that we should is uh, your thoughts on supply. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, supply is an interesting topic because I felt like being on the front line, uh, COVID hit, many developers basically stopped a lot of their projects or slowed a lot of their projects. There was a massive lack of supply onto the market. Yeah. And there was also a massive issue where people just stopped selling real estate. It wasn't an issue. It just it made sense. That's why we saw this huge increase in prices. Have you seen any interesting statistics or data talking about supply and what that's going to look like over the next, you know, near term? Uh, yeah, look, look um, interesting that you say. Um, funny enough, they're talk we're talking about property prices in the future. Okay? Yes. We're talking about interest rates. Um, um, the other really interesting aspect in relation to pr property prices is very simple, is demand and supply. And let's talk about demand and supply in two different ca uh, characteristics. You've got demand and supply on what's listed on the, on the market at the moment for anyone to buy a property. Okay, so during COVID, during the last two years, you had a very low amount of availability of people wishing to sell a property. Now that we've come out of lockdown, we've had 30, we have had a surge of listings. We've had, it's, it's, it's actually higher now than it has been for the last four or five years. Um, there was a 30% increase in listings just in the last two, three months. And so when, when you're looking at the clearance rates, you can see the clearance rates have actually started falling a little bit, only because you've had a very, you've had a lot more buy, willing buyers than you had supply in that, in that particular time in the market. Okay, so now what we're seeing is that the heat of the market coming off a little bit because people have an option. For example, if I've been looking for a house in a particular area, um, 500 square meters, there would only be two, three houses in that area available in a year. Now there's probably 10, 15 in one month. And so therefore now you're seeing the price, that heat of the market come off a little bit. So that's, that's one aspect. Another interesting uh, analysis as well is that systemically uh, we have an undersupply of housing in Australia. Okay, so that's actually cushioned it actually cushions when we have a bit of a uh, issue in the economy as well. So um, some interesting stats there is that with the current migration pre-COVID of 160,000 a year, we need about 40,000 new dwellings. So in the last decade, you have only had one year that we've actually supplied more than we needed from the, for the yearly amount. So every year that we go along, we're actually supplying less than what we require with the current migration policy, which is close to 160 to 180 migrants a year. So that's 40,000 New South Wales, by the way. Yes. Um, but another interesting piece of information is because we've got so much undersupply, Peter Tulip did another interesting paper for the Reserve Bank um, two, three years ago, 
is that the average person in Sydney is paying 73% more for their house because there's not enough supply in Sydney. So that's about $489,000 off the medium. In Melbourne, um, it's about $324,000. Um, in Queensland, it's lower because they've been able to deliver more land and their planning system is a lot more efficient. So when you actually look at the Eastern Seaboard, why is Sydney most expensive? Um, it could be for the fact that we have chronic undersupply, one. Two, our planning system is very slow. It sucks. So, it, it, so by the time you want to put a DA in and get it approved and deliver it, you may have already missed the whole property cycle. Yes. And that developer might have to wait on that DA until the next cycle. So we're not as nimble as we are in Queensland, for example, with that planning process. So you can actually relate back, you know, this paper was fascinating. It's actually related back what the costing is to each apartment and each uh, house on the lack of supply that we have in Sydney, Melbourne and, and Queensland. And it's something that's felt when you're buying real estate, you can see, you can feel it and understand it. You know, supply and demand is one of those things that as a real estate investor, you understand it, particularly if you get your hands and feet, you know, dirty. You go to an open home and if there's five people there, you feel this fear of missing out. Yeah. You know, you feel like there's competition. If there's nobody there, then suddenly you feel like you've got a chance. Now, you know, if there's a lot of supply coming to the market, there's a lot of opportunities, you know, the same hundred buyers spread out across all the different houses, estates and development opportunities. And it, it keeps the prices lower. So it's just a very simple demand supply. It's a, it's a it's first chapter in each, you know, if you go to university and you start economics, it's the first lesson that you get taught. The, 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 the simple demand supply equation, the, the more of something, the cheaper it is, the less of something, the more expensive it is. It's just very simple. Yes. And, and thank you for that breakdown. We look forward to your next paper. That's coming out surely the end of the month. So you must be driving your family mad. Yeah, I am. <laughs> You've been speaking to my wife then. <laughs> yeah, I, I uh, walk around the house trying to think what I'm going to write next. It's always a bit of a challenge. But uh, yes, uh, end of this week, I'll be writing a new article. Well, Paul, I know that you're a busy man. You've got a buzzing office. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Have you got any parting thoughts for our listeners, viewers, uh, all of our gracious guests out there? Look, I think the other interesting thing is um, there's a lot of talk about negativity in relation to maybe we're at 12 o'clock in the property cycle. But after you know, 25 years experience being in the industry, there's opportunities all the time everywhere. It just depends on how hard you're looking and, and making sure that you actually are always stayed in the market, you're always diversified, and you're always um, um, able to absorb the information and get good advice from people as well. So despite the fact that we can see risks with inflation and there's a shortage and, you know, there might be other elements in the economy that you can't control, but what you can control is being able to be active all the time and always be, there's always opportunities to make money, whether it's buying direct property, whether it's investing into a mortgage fund such as ourselves, um, and there's other opportunities out there as well. So that's, that's my imparting advice to, to listeners that do not get too carried away with the negativity in the news all the time. Yeah. Always be active, have your eyes and ears open, you know, and thank you all for your attention. And this is good advice. There's different ways for you to go and get a solid return. You don't have to leave it in your bank and earn. What do you get at a bank now? 
0.1% if you like, well, that's official cash rates, but yes, you're close to nothing. Yeah. There's plenty of opportunities to make money all the time. Thanks, Paul. No problem. We, we really appreciate your time. Thank you again. Uh, for all of you out there, if you got value today, love to hear what you liked, what you didn't like. Leave it in the comments. Like, subscribe, all that fun stuff. Share it with all your friends and we'll see you on the next podcast episode. Catch you later. Thank you.